This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. How does a Swiss aquarium fish enthusiast go from molecular cancer research to leadership roles for both Amazonas Magazine, a must-read resource for aquarium hobbyists, and Swiss Tropicals, a company specializing in aquarium filtration systems? Join us as my guest, Dr. Stefan Tanner, senior co-editor and co-publisher of Amazonas Magazines and head of Swiss Tropicals, describes his aquarium fish journey from Switzerland to Minnesota. We'll be right back after these messages. Does your dog itch, scratch, stink, or shed like crazy? Come to Dynavite for help. Order a 90-day supply of Dynavite. Dynavite for life. Pick up two tubes of Doggo Suds. Get the third tube free. Peppermint, tea tree, lavender, Doggo Sud shampoo. Made with all-natural coconut, jojoba, aloe. Great for healthy skin and soft, shiny coats. But no itchy, harsh chemicals. Lather up, rinse away. Try Doggo Suds. Buy two, get one free. At Dynavite.com. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Stefan Tanner, Senior Co-Editor and Co-Publisher of Amazonas Magazine and Head of Swiss Tropicals. Thanks for joining us, Stefan. Well, thank you for having me on today. Thanks. Well, I appreciate your... Um, Obviously, your time, but also you're getting all your kind of background information. I did a little uh, a little reading of your website as well for Swiss Tropicals, and yeah, quite very fascinating. I you know didn't obviously know a lot of the uh, your background before, so it'll be interesting to kind of delve into that a little bit. I usually start with some kind of personal questions, nothing too personal. So, um, how did you first become interested in fish? You know, how old were you, and kind of what sort of aquarium setups and species did you keep? Well, I guess I was sort of the prototypical geeky guy, not too popular in school, kind of, you know, hanging out with myself and interested simply in everything that uh, sort of crawls and flies and and swims. And uh, as a kid, we dug ponds that was very popular in the early 80s in Switzerland. So rich people wanted a nice garden pond. So we dug ponds and then we sold them frogs, which hopped right back to our ponds so we can sell them a bunch of times over. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, the uh, sort of thing eventually came to other than nature outside. It was like uh, keeping fish inside. And after you know, a bunch of discussions with my parents, they allowed me to buy a tank and they insisted it has to be a new one because they were kind of afraid that the old ones I was looking at were going to leak. So I got a brand new uh, 75 gallon tank, which of course at that time, age 14 was quite an endeavor. And so I yeah, started keeping fish like almost everybody. You just buy different things, put it together and figure out later. It doesn't work when you put a walking catfish with a bunch of tetras because you're only going to have <laughs> walking catfish after a while. And uh, over time, I learned that, well, I want to do this right and uh, started to buy aquatic literature. 
that's really sort of in 84 that's where everything got started and kind of the circle closed again when i bought uh, amazonas magazine last year okay well that's uh very again like you said kind of typical but also uh atypical in in a sense how would you say the hobby was in switzerland compared to obviously you don't know the same time frame but maybe compared to the u.s as far as you were aware well, I would say most of the market at that time sort of in the pet trade was uh, ruled by small independent stores. I mean, big chain stores did not exist at that point. And that was, you know, 82, sort of in that time frame, 82, 85. And uh, some of them were better. Some of them were a little not so sophisticated. Right. Sure. But overall that... Uh, you know, I was lucky that I met an elderly store owner who kind of didn't get totally upset with me asking a million questions and hanging out in the store for like three hours straight after school. So that uh, eventually, yeah, got me, you know, more knowledge, more experience, connected me to uh, people that also like fish. And yeah, for the longest time, there were three of us, two gentlemen who actually yeah, about 10 years older than I was at that time. And so rather than hanging out with people that are about my age, I was usually hanging out with people that were significantly older. That's why you're so mature. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I age every day is not necessarily getting better. You know, I'm not, I love wine and cheese. They both get better with age. I'm not sure that that applies to me. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, you've obviously done a lot of education from, you know, my reading and uh, seeing your your background. You attended the University of Bern and studied ecology and molecular biology. What, what kind of made you interested in that? Well, I was always fascinated with zoology. So that's the sort of track that I took. And uh, yeah, I was kind of a little bit under pressure. My parents weren't exactly rich, meaning that while school overall is free in Switzerland, meaning you don't really pay anything but 500 bucks or so for a semester for, you know, basic insurance and library access and stuff, uh, you still have uh, costs to live. And um, in Switzerland, life costs are not exactly cheap. So my dad said, you know, we give you one chance, so take it. And um I did. So I put all kinds of things together, like geography parts with hydrology and uh, agricultural pedology, meaning uh, soil sciences and uh, botany and zoology, just so I could cram everything together in the shortest time frame, because he needed to fulfill a certain number of so-called blocks. And so I had all kinds of weird things together. But I think it allowed me to kind of understand certain things. So if somebody later on talked about ecology, when plants and insects play a role, then I kind of understood that, yeah, the hydrology and, and pedology part, meaning the soil and precipitation also matter because that dictates what grows, etc. So these kind of having a holistic view, understanding how things interact uh, was a major part of my interest. It always fascinated me trying to figure out how can you keep something in captivity so that it essentially lives a normal life? So let's talk about that a little bit. So while you were in um, going through, I guess, your undergraduate, you know, kind of college years, you also worked at a local fish and pet shop. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned during the, that period of time? Yeah, that started, uh, I mean, like anybody going through uh, school and college at least at that time, you had to have a job because otherwise you didn't have any money to spend. And 
I you know blew away almost all my money on fish and equipment. And so in that regard, I worked at various different factories, you know, metal factories and other things. And eventually, by happenstance, uh, through a friend, they said, well, that store further up in the mountains is looking for somebody. And I've, you know, I visited that store occasionally. And so I went there and asked. And the next Saturday, I was working there. And this became one of my best sort of jobs and friendship at the same time because uh, the couple who owned the store and I became very close in terms of doing things beyond just working there and um, for the longest time while I was during undergrad years he was hoping that I would eventually take over the store down the line and um, yeah at one point once I started my uh, PhD work it became sort of you know time-wise a little bit more difficult to do and eventually stopped working there. But I learned a lot about basic things uh, in terms of marketing, buying stuff. Today, say a lot, Swiss Tropical's whole philosophy of sell stuff at a, a decent price, not overpriced, but also don't try to cheap it out for no reason. Don't play the Walmart game because the race to the bottom has literally no winners. And um, he was always like, you know, buy the best fish or the best uh, supplies money can buy. Because if you buy the best stuff, then you can offer the best service with those products. And that was kind of something I learned from Peter, the owner, who was always very adamant that, especially when it comes to livestock, there is no second best. There is just the best fish that is good and lives is going to make you money as a business person, but is also going to be making the customer happy because obviously he will uh, hopefully make him a happy fish keeper. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned uh, your PhD. You ended up going into human and molecular genetics, and then you, uh, I guess you moved to the U.S. and uh, started more research at the Ohio State. Can you, um, I guess, maybe give us a real quick brief on that? Yeah, this was one of those things where parsimony or uh, uh, happenstance comes together in terms of when I finished my uh, master's and I was working with great tits, figuring out if females that have a high parasite load look for other males to mate with. And yeah, there is a correlation that if they have more parasites, they're more likely to have offspring in the nest that are not of the male that is feeding the babies. So, but once that was over... The professor who at that time was offering me a PhD position simply said, well, you can start working, but I don't have any money to pay you. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was not sort of a good option for me. And then at the same time, a friend of mine finished her thesis at the University Children's Hospital in Bern, and she was working on X-linked myotubular myopathy, which is a, a rare inherited disorder that is lethal in males. And um, yeah, I... Uh, Interviewed, got that position, and I was literally you know, super lucky. I was at the right time, in the right place. And two and a half years later and six papers later, I had my PhD, which was very fast and very, uh, I was literally very lucky. I mean, most people take longer, but very often it has more to do with what your project is, how long it takes, not necessarily with how much effort you put into it. Obviously, that plays a role too, but sometimes uh, the topic can be a problem. And then once I was finished with that, or close to finishing it, we had a regular meeting in Holland where sort of a European Council of Rare Disease Specialists comes together. And that's, you know, simply 
because individual rare cases do not occur so often. So in order to figure out ways of scientifically exploring them and treating them, you have to compile resources. And um, this uh, neuromuscular center effort, it was really great because you got to know literally everybody in the field at those meetings. And uh, I asked, you know, is there any postdoctoral options anywhere? And one of my Finnish friends suggested to contact a person in Ohio who just moved there. And short story was I moved to Ohio in 98, then met my wife in the first year or future wife at that time. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, then kind of stranded in Ohio. And then in 2012, we moved up here to Rochester, Minnesota, when she got a great job offer from Mayo Clinic. And I said at that time, fabulous, you got a good job, you're an MD, I'm a PhD, so I'm just going to retire now. (laughs) (laughs) I want to hit one more topic before we take a break. Um, Sure. I noticed you early on were pretty active with, and I always definitely advocate folks joining aquarium fish organizations, but you were really active with the uh, International Society for Barbs, Tetras, Loaches, and Catfishes, which I guess in German or Swiss is the IGBSSW. So how do they group those together and and how did you get involved and enjoy your uh, membership and leadership roles in that group? Well, it came about, I guess there's two stories to it. One is it was formed because there were, you know, lots of life bearer, Kili associations, cichlid associations, all that kind. But there was literally nobody doing the fish species that have that Webersham apparatus, which is kind of a morphological modification. And um, that some of the founders in was 89 decided that why not put those together? You have to keep in mind when it came to catfish, other than maybe a dozen different Corridora species, some bristlenose and some hypostomus and sailfin plecos, there was nothing in the trade. I mean, a few whip tails, nobody knew what they were. They were all <laughs> formally called Rhinoloricaria parva. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, nothing was known. But I'm a typical cave dweller, meaning I like stuff that hides and is not necessarily very colorful. And so when I heard about that organization, and that actually was, I think it happened through the uh, editor of the Dots magazine in Germany, very famous Dots magazine. Rainer Stavikowski and I met at a meeting in Switzerland and um, he said, you know, I know a, a German guy who is very much in catfish and that is uh, Hans-Georg Evers in Hamburg. So a few months later, I took the train to Hamburg. We met and uh, Ingo Seidel, another catfish enthusiast, came as well. And uh, three of us went to East Germany at that time, you know, shortly after the reunification and met with East German breeders there. And this was a seminal meeting in my life in terms of, I met people that are just absolutely fantastic in terms of what they breed. I mean, they have bred stuff 30 years ago, we have troubles with today. And they simply had to because they had no access to new fish all the time like we are used to. So everything that ever made it into East Germany, they put every effort to breed it. And that was really fantastic. And they were also very modest, very humble people that were just, you know, getting together, talking about fish. And they didn't care that I was young and didn't know much. They were like welcome and uh, welcoming and shared knowledge very freely. So it was a really, really intriguing thing. And 
Eventually, they joined uh, BSSW, the West German organization. And I think it was in 93 or so, the previous uh, editor resigned. And um, yeah, I was, uh, well, bold enough to hold out my hand <laughs> in the back, not knowing what I'm going to get into. And so uh, I did uh, the editing and layouting and everything of the BSSW report, which is produced quarterly for yeah, 93 to 2006. So once I moved to the US, US, we had to do it everything, you know, via computer. Before, there was still the time when you actually send printing materials by mail from point to point. I mean, today you could not imagine doing that. But that was the rule then. Obviously, the distances were shorter than here in the US. But still, well, that's, that's how great. I ended up doing that. Okay, well, that's great. Well, well let's take a short break. And then we'll uh, continue our discussion with Dr. Stefan Tanner of Amazonas Magazine and Swiss Tropicals after these messages from our sponsors. Hey there, pet parents. Michelle Fern here. You know, as busy pet parents, we often forget about our own needs and You know, we need to take care of ourselves so we can reach our goals and make our lives that much more fulfilling. Well, there's something that is there to make it better for you, and that's called BetterHelp Online Counseling. You can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, and it's super convenient. You can use desktop, you can use mobile device, and it's iPhone and Android friendly. You can also use a video session. You can use chat or text, whatever you choose. They hook you up with one of their many counselors. They have over 3,000 licensed therapists across the United States. These licensed professionals specialize in depression, anger, family conflict, anxiety, insomnia, trauma, grief, They cover everything. Now, Pet Life Radio has a special discount for you. You'll save 10% off your first month with the discount code PETLIFE. Go ahead and connect with BetterHelp.com and start making your life even that much better. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. (laughs) PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Stefan Tanner of Amazonas Magazine and Swiss Tropicals. So we kind of got a little bit of uh, insight into sort of your background and education. I kind of wanted to hit on Swiss Tropicals first, and then we'll move on to Amazonas. But so I learned from your website that you had a fish room in Ohio uh, when you, I guess, sometime after you moved to the States with 63 tanks. What did you end up uh, keeping in in all those tanks and what kind of was piquing your interest at that time? Well, always catfish. Catfish were sort of the first thing that always came about. I actually started off in in a small apartment with my wife. I think it was in 2002 or something. I said, you know, I've always kept fish. And um, she was kind of like, okay. So after (laughs) a while, we had a bunch of tanks all over the apartment, in the bedroom, in the living room, in the office. And uh, eventually we decided, you know, we're going to hang out longer in Columbus than was originally planned. And so we looked for a house. And the most important thing at the house was finding a house that has a basement where you could stick a bunch of fish tanks. (laughs) And uh, yeah, then I ordered 
I don't know, 70 some tanks from a manufacturer and uh, set them up. And that was the first time when I kind of realized that gets a little out of hand <laughs> <laughs> because suddenly you have all these shelving parts uh, in the basement and piles of tanks in the garage and all kinds of supplies piled up and that it actually takes quite a lot of time to put everything together. But then um, once that was set up, uh, I started, you know, barbs, tetras, uh, loaches and, and catfish. It was really uh, the BSSW again, except in life okay. form uh, that uh, became the sort of the center. And that was also, of course, about a good 10 years after the so-called L number uh, catfish boom. The pleco boom started with all those fish, mostly from uh, uh, the central Amazon basin. And that totally changed the hobby because suddenly we were used to getting some fancy Malawi and Tanganyikan cichlids that were expensive. But usually they were expensive for a very brief period of time because most of them are rather easy to breed. Well, a few Tanganyikans excluded, but most of the larger Malawis are not that difficult. So the, they came in, were super expensive, and within a short time period, the price dropped. Well, it was different with the catfish. They came in and we killed literally thousands of them because we didn't know how they lived. We didn't understand that they were living in very warm water that is very clear, very highly oxygenated and has absolutely no organic traces whatsoever. You know, it's not an Amazon river like you think. It's more like a clear water creek up in the mountains, except it's very warm. And we didn't know all that. We also didn't know that these fish, for the most part, don't eat algae or, or plant matter, that they are actually mostly carnivores. And uh, so we killed bazillions of fish in the initial years until we started to understand how these species actually live. So let's um, segue over to Swiss Tropicals. And when I was kind of going through your website, you mentioned a lot of it was actually founded on the your need for uh, materials for your HMF. Um, which I had to look up and learned it's the hamburger or mountain filter. Is that correct? <laughs> that is right. Yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I think you mentioned on this, your site as well. It's really not. I hadn't heard of it before. Can you maybe um, talk a little bit about that? And I guess how that became sort of the basis for a lot of your um, the, the business end of Swiss Tropicals. Yeah. Uh, reticulation of filter foam kind of developed in the uh, 60s and 70s. And I think that was at some time, some time. People say sometime in the 1970s, somewhere in Hamburg, somebody came up with the idea of sticking a piece of foam at the end of a tank and then pumping the water from one side to the other using a, uh, an airlifter tube. And nobody really truly knows where it originated, but it's entirely possible that it was that region because that was sort of the center of innovation in the aquatics hobby in Europe at that time. And uh, I knew the foam the so-called famous blue foam for years working in the store. We used it for all kinds of things. And uh, when I came to the U.S., I was kind of looking around, trying to, to set up my tanks and, uh, yeah, not too very much avail. Uh, multiple companies I contacted couldn't even tell me what the foam exactly is that they sell. <laughs> and um, some were just laughing at me in terms of like, yeah, you're not, you know, important enough. I was like, okay. Went back to Europe, uh, got into contact with uh, EMW, is the manufacturer of uh, one of the various types of foams, and um, eventually became their US distributor. And uh, we have now, we go back 12 some years, 
or more than 12 years of working together. And um, it was literally just trying to build my own fish room. And then people saw it and said, hey, can I get that? And eventually it was actually Discus Hans in Baltimore who encouraged me to do it commercially because he obviously wanted a bunch of foam too. And um, that got it all started. And with the first few pallets in the garage, my, I told my wife, well, either I'm going to have foam for the rest of my life or this is a good idea. <laughs> so I guess the latter applied in the long run. But yeah, it, uh, a lot of people didn't know what it's all about. And it's still fairly unknown, but I'm not spending a huge amount of time on advertisement. And unfortunately, I'm not a good videographer or anything. So I, uh, you know, no YouTube videos yet. Yeah, that's I mean, I, I literally need to have somebody do that for me simply because I don't have the patience for doing stuff like that. <laughs> well, Plus, I thought you had some nice pictures on your I think it was on your website because I was I was trying to figure out how that how that worked. I think it was on your website. I was trying to remember. But um, but yeah, so, so I guess you just feel they're very efficient and real good filters, I guess. Is that that kind of um, well, the, the principle is actually and that comes back to ecology you know, studying how these things interact. The idea of, of the filter foam is essentially that it's just a huge uh, biotope, a huge habitat for uh, filter organisms. The foam itself is really not doing that much. It's literally just trapping particles, but then it's a microorganism which digests all the organic material that comes into it. And, you know, to give you an idea, a, a block in a 10-gallon tank in terms of filter surface, is as big as a medium-sized canister filter at a fraction of its cost. Okay. Plus, you don't have any hoses that hang over the site, so there's no, you know, risk of leaking or right. power problems. An air-driven filter, if you have a power outage, which in Columbus was quite common, then if you have tons of little pumps running and hang on backs or little internal filters, they have the nasty habit that when the power comes back on, when they're a little full of sludge, they just don't come back on. And then you come back in the evening and you have a bunch of, you know, filters that didn't turn back on and you have to go around the fish room and restart. Them. Right. With okay. an air-driven filter, that problem never exists. You know, the pump comes back on and comes back on. And with one single air pump, you can do the whole room. And if you have a longer power outage, a small battery setup or a generator can run the whole fish room, which uh, makes, you know, emergency maintenance a lot easier okay now that makes a lot of sense well let's talk a little bit about amazonas now so definitely one of my favorite aquarium hobby magazines beautiful pictures great articles really good detail and very well researched so how did you first become involved with amazonas well we touched on uh, hans georg Evers before uh, early in my career and hans georg is actually the founding editor of amazonas magazine in germany and uh, that started up in the early 2000s. And uh, by 2012, an English edition was published by Reef to Rainforest in Vermont. And uh, shortly thereafter, I became involved as the translator for both Amazonas and Coral Magazine, because Hans suggested me to James Lawrence, the owner of Reef to Rainforest, to do the translations, simply because I guess on top of speaking both languages, I also know a few things about fish and uh, that is of course quite helpful in terms of you know making sure that the context actually is correct after the translation 
And so for years I did the translations and yeah, a little bit over a year ago, uh, James decided that he would like to step back a little. And uh, so I talked to my uh, colleagues, Matt Peterson and Mike Tuccinardi about, yeah, if we could handle that. And so we jumped into it, set up a new company, Aquatic Media Press, that is now essentially owning Amazon as magazine. So we still license the German content. We, of course, add our own because there's certain articles that are not good for the U.S. market. Say, for example, snakeheads. While certainly interesting, snakeheads are totally illegal in the U.S. And <laughs> henceforth, it's not, you don't really do people a favor if you talk big about something they can't keep. So <laughs> that's right. that's uh, on one hand, not you know, you could argue the knowledge or the interest might still be there, but you might also encourage people to do stupid things like smuggling them into the country, which is, uh, I always emphasize that is actually bad. I mean, you can argue if the <laughs> yes. rule is justified, you can debate that. If you don't like the rule, you know, there is ways of, of addressing that and going, trying to change those rules. But just Ignoring them is actually counterproductive for the whole hobby, because if we have a bunch of black sheep that do stupid things, then the result is usually the regulations get tougher. And then the 99% who do fish keeping legally with the best intentions have to pay the price for that 1% who is too dumb. <laughs> Right, right. Rules. So I wanted I wanted to touch base a little bit on the current issue, July, August, and uh, the uh, theme of of natives. And I guess I mean it's it's since Amazonas is in um, you know out of Europe as well as the U.S. I I mean it's really focusing on North American natives. Can you explain the interest? I mean, I, my understanding is that Europe has a real keen interest in North American native fishes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I guess there is always the the thing for what's new. I mean, a lot of the hobby is driven at the forefront the, by the enthusiasts, by those people that are always looking for something new or unusual. So for the longest time period, it was, of course, South America. Then there was a lot of emphasis on Asia over the last few years. But then, especially because there are some really extraordinary photographers uh, here in the U.S. that have sent, you know, taken pictures of darters and chiners in their most beautiful colors, that people were like, wow, there's really cool fish in North America. And many of those you can actually keep quite easily in a fish tank. So that's what drove the, uh, the, the interest in Europe. And I think what is also part of it, most of these fish are extremely difficult to come by in Europe. Uh, there's m multiple reasons for it. One is many have never been exported to Europe. That's rule number one, meaning there's also no breeders. Now you can find lots of breeders that breed uh, rainbow shiners. I mean, that's like a million fish over in Europe now. But other species are very rare. And then there is essentially no commercial export from the US to anywhere. I mean, it just doesn't exist, which I always say, it's probably a, a thing that a lot of people here are actually not really aware, <laughs> oddly enough, what swims around in some of the states in, in the US. I mean, it's just extraordinary, the diversity of fish and their adaptations, etc. But of course, it's also the, the regulations. I mean, in some states, keeping native fishes is almost impossible without any special permits. And um, I wish there would be some more effort actually to maybe make these fish more widely available in terms of breeding them commercially and actually making them 
a trade commodity because in the end for some of those more rare fish that might be actually the best way of protecting them yeah it's interesting you mentioned that because we actually have um not um me personally but some of my colleagues are working on reproductive methods for commercialization of some of the natives out of our lab here so they're looking at some of the sunfishes and some of the not not so much darters because we're not that cold (laughs) but sunfishes and some of the other shiners but so yeah yeah that's no that's really really interesting to hear about i think that would be especially in europe and also in asia I mean, if you're talking shipping some of those red shiners to Asia, I mean, you get crazy money for it. Now, you know, you can say, well, that's all about greed. But the truth is, if somebody can make a good living breeding something like that, why not? Sure. I mean, that's the, the these are jobs. And most people who breed fish, they're not in it to get, you know, become millionaires because most don't. <laughs> but uh, it's, you know, Somebody say out in the rural area where jobs are maybe more difficult to come by, if they can produce something that has a market value without destroying the whole environment, that's the way forward. Sure. So um, in this issue, you also have an article on dwarf crayfish, you know, which I, I didn't even realize, I guess there was interest in. I mean, I knew some of the other crayfish, but I didn't really know anything about the dwarf crayfish. Is that something you see a lot of interest in, I guess, either here and or up in Europe? Yes, especially uh, a lot of the uh, more colorful crayfish species out of New Guinea and uh, Australia are extremely popular in Europe, but also in other places of Asia. Obviously, there's actually quite a big problem with crayfish because they can become quite invasive. I mean, here in the US, we have the rusty crayfish. We wiped out most of the native fauna on crayfish by bringing in North American crayfish right? because they um, carry a fungus that is deadly to European species, but the US species are uh, resilient or resistant. And uh, again, that comes to, on one hand, the trade makes critters that are quite hidden and uh, unknown to the population at large more popular and become you know people become more aware of it but it also carries risks and unfortunately the trade overall but uh, also uh, organizations clubs etc we just overall we need to do a much much better job about telling Everybody, anything you keep in a fish tank can never, under no circumstances, be released into the wild. It doesn't matter where you live. You can be living on the North Pole. It does not belong out into the wild. Now, granted, that requires solutions. And um, one of the Amazonas magazines, a few issues back, actually showed the Sea Grant program's effort about taking fish back. And that might be something for a different show to go into. But yeah, the uh, right. take-back program, kind of like what Fish and Wildlife does with snakes in Florida, the amnesty yeah. program. Yeah, and we, actually, and we actually did that for a number of years with the Florida Fish and Wildlife with fish as well. We had a um, take-back program for any um, non-natives that people didn't want anymore. So yeah, no, definitely, you're definitely uh, spot on with that. That's a huge issue. Um, Hab Attitude is a program through, I think, PJAC, you know, looking at trying to make, make sure yep. people are aware of not releasing fish into the natural environment. It's very, very important that you mention that. And yes, that and, and it's actually quite successful and can be a huge PR tool for the organized hobby. We did yep. it here in uh, Minnesota. And when we did it the first time, we 
combine it with our regular auction. And uh, the result was all the fish we got back, you know, they generated some funds four or $500 total when we auctioned them off. So they found a new home immediately, which was great. Yep. And we actually were able to give the cash back to the Sea Grant program. So yep, it helped good. fund research. And for the club, it was superb. The first time we did it, there was two TV stations or two or three radio stations showing up at our auction. I mean, in terms of PR, it was yep. just fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's excellent. Definitely, definitely. No, good, good points. So uh, as we're kind of winding down on this interview, and I know there's a million more things we can talk about, what, do you have any, uh, any hints at what might be coming into some future issues of Amazonas? Well, we're uh, talking about all kinds of different uh, things. One of the next issues will be on uh, nano aquariums, which is an extremely popular topic, especially with people who love shrimp or dwarf fish. So there will be an issue coming up on that. We also have an issue that will be, this will be actually the next issue, issue uh, volume 8.5. I don't say much more than we call it the Halloween issue. <laughs> and it will be quite uh, i predict it will be quite controversial but uh, okay. uh, i will i will explain in in at least my part of the editorial why we decided to uh, write about this topic okay i think it's important to cover all avenues or all fields of fish keeping because right. if you ignore certain fields you leave a vacuum and the vacuum is usually taken up by extremists or the left or the right. And sure. I do not want to cede ground to crazy ideas. <laughs> so I think uh, it will. And I hope it will start a discussion. That is essentially the goal that we okay. have. Well, now I'm really, I'm really interested, um, really interested to see what that's about now. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, as a publisher producing paper, we have to think ahead and stay relevant. I do think uh, the print literature goes through sort of a renaissance lately. I mean, book sales are up and actually e-readers are down, which is kind of interesting. And uh, I think as long as you put out uh, a good product and, you know, that has nothing to do with me, the good product, Amazonas Magazine, is uh, a combination of fantastic authors and photographers and a fantastic team in Vermont, in Colorado, and here in uh, Minnesota that actually puts it together. So my gratitude mostly goes to my uh, co-publishers and my production team and my editor-in-chief or editor-in-executive editor, Ann Whitman, who is majorly responsible for how this uh, shapes up. And of course, we have a great editorial board that contributes ideas and is always there with advice. I mean, without all that teamwork, this would not happen. So I have little or nothing to do with the success of it. I'm just <laughs> I'm sure you do. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I, I again want to thank our guest, Stefan Tanner, and our producer, Mark Winner, for making the show possible. Stefan, did you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, just keep fish and have fun with it because it's a hobby. It's supposed to be fun, first and foremost. Great advice. And yeah, hopefully we can get a lot of the younger folks involved as well. It's definitely a great way to kind of enter the uh, arena of biology and environment and ecology and, and pet keeping. So thanks again for joining us, Stefan. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. Has been a pleasure. Please be sure to check out Amazonas Magazine if you haven't already, as well as Swiss Tropicals. Uh, as I mentioned, Amazonas is incredibly beautiful, great detail, great articles, really, really takes the uh, hobby to the next level. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, feel free to email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. And again, definitely check out Amazonas and Swiss Tropicals. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.